You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt from Vinnie Paz singing Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral, and you can check out the website YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. There you'll find all the back episodes, you'll find a link to send me a message, and you'll find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, a piece from March 29, 2023. This is published at npr.org, written by Barbara Sprunt and Susan Davis. The Democratic-led U.S. Senate voted 66 to 30 on legislation to formally repeal the war authorizations that justified, and didn't really justify them, it allowed them, the 1991 Gulf War and the 2003 Iraq War. Quote, this effort has been years in the making, said Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The American people are tired of endless wars in the Middle East. Senators Tim Kaine, Democrat of Virginia, and Todd Young, Republican of Indiana, led a years-long bipartisan effort to repeal these authorizations for use of military force. Kaine said the effort faced indifference from the Obama administration and outright opposition from the Trump administration. But the political stars aligned under President Biden, who has indicated he will sign it if it reaches his desk. The action is largely symbolic as U.S. combat operations against Iraq ended more than a decade ago, and if enacted, the repeals would have no effect on any ongoing military operations. Rather, supporters argued it was important for Congress to reassert its constitutional authority to start and end wars. A lot has changed in the last 20 years, and yet, according to our laws today, we are still at war with Iraq. Young said on the floor on Wednesday, This isn't just the result of an oversight. It is an intentional abdication of this body in its constitutional role in America's national security, and allowing it to continue is a strategic mistake. Senators sidestepped the more difficult debate about how to address the 2001 war authorization that was approved in the wake of the September 11, 2001 attacks and has given broad legal authority to four presidents to conduct counterterrorism operations around the world. Amendments by two Republican senators, Rand Paul of Kentucky and Mike Lee of Utah, addressing the 2001 AUMF, were overwhelmingly rejected. Paul's amendment would have sunset the 2001 AUMF in six months to force Congress to rewrite or repeal it. And Lee's amendment would sunset all AUMFs every two years to force every new Congress to assert whether the war authority should continue. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is not yet committed to a vote, but the measure has bipartisan support in the House. 
A similar bill passed the then Democratic-led chamber in 2021. Next up is a piece written by Iqbal Jassat, published at iol.co.za. Was it a sick joke, as one commentator suggested, for the International Criminal Court to issue a warrant of arrest against Russian President Vladimir Putin on the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq? And what does it mean for South Africa and the BRICS formation? It certainly raises justifiable questions about the partiality of the ICC, given that it was able to conclude and determine Putin's culpability as a war criminal within a year of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. While two decades later, and despite overwhelming evidence of gross human rights violations leading to the deaths of millions in Iraq, Two of the arch-villains, George W. Bush and Tony Blair, remain untouched by the ICC. Bias of this type has given rise to public perception of the ICC as a NATO-allied body that is used as a political tool to serve Western interests. Indeed, thus far, not a single American or European leader has been indicted for war crimes, while many African leaders have. The same can be said of Israel. Leaders of the settler colonial entity continue perpetuating the most horrific war crimes against native Palestinians, yet not one has faced charges, let alone arrest warrants. ICC prosecutors can neither claim ignorance about Israel's war on the Palestinian population, nor that no one has laid complaints at their door in respect of atrocities stretching from 1948 to date. The question which arises is what makes the ICC run with haste to indict Putin within a short space of time and at whose bidding. If the prosecution team values a need for integrity, impartiality, and commitment to justice without fear or favor, we expect an announcement that a warrant of arrest for Benjamin Netanyahu has been issued. Apart from a host of charges for war crimes against Palestinians, he is responsible for over the many periods he held sway over Israel as Prime Minister. Consistency by the ICC requires he is charged for exactly the reasons Putin has been. Experts point out that Israel should be worried given that Putin is accused of violating prohibitions set in international laws of occupation. Quote, the arrest warrant alleges the crime of deportation of a population from the occupied territory to the territory of the occupier was committed. The crime of transfer of civilians from the occupying power to the occupied territory is defined in the Rome Statute. In other words, America and the West, who have excitedly welcomed and rallied behind the arrest warrant against Putin, will find their joy short-lived if the ICC finds the courage to charge Netanyahu and his thugs for exactly the same crimes. The violation of the laws of occupation, and especially the ban on the transfer of the occupier's population to the occupied Palestinian territories, turned into Jewish enclaves known as settlements, render Israel guilty. And it doesn't end there. Forced transfers of Palestinian populations such as the Khan al-Amar, and of communities in Masafir Yada, if executed, quote, will fall under the same crime that Putin is accused of, 
deportation of an occupied population outside the occupied territory or forced transfer inside it, say legal experts. Indeed, to the disappointment of many lawfare campaigners who had the expectation that the ICC would be keenly aware of Israel's deliberate and defiant violations of the prohibition on population transfer, are surprised that Putin has been hastily pursued while Netanyahu and his ilk are scot-free. Failure by the ICC to prosecute Israeli leaders is not only to the detriment of Palestinians, but to universal justice. What explains this failure of the ICC? Could its reluctance to move against Israel be explained by threats issued by former U.S. President Donald Trump, which to date has not been repudiated by the current incumbent, Joe Biden? Quote, we will not cooperate with the ICC. We will provide no assistance to the ICC. We certainly will not join the ICC. We will let the ICC die on its own. Trump's discredited national security guru John Bolton was equally harsh and critical of the ICC. He referred to it as, quote, outright dangerous to the United States, Israel, and other allies. He also threatened that, quote, if the court comes after us, Israel, or other U.S. allies, we will not sit quietly. The official line from the White House, as explained by Bolton, was that the U.S. was prepared to slap financial sanctions and criminal charges on officials of the ICC if they proceeded against any American. This next piece is published at uknews.yahoo.com, is written by James Hockaday. This week marks the 20th anniversary since the beginning of the Iraq War, one of the most controversial conflicts in modern times. On 20 March 2003, the U.S. launched its first airstrikes on the Gulf State, lighting up the skies above Baghdad with an ultra-aggressive shock-and-awe strategy. Soon after, a coalition of American, British, Australian, and Polish soldiers marched over the border from Kuwait to execute Operation Iraqi Freedom. And that reminds me of the uh, earlier code name or considered potential code names for the second Iraq, U.S. Iraq War, uh, instead of Operation Iraqi Freedom, which they ultimately selected, they initially considered Operation Iraqi Liberation until maybe someone realized that that acronym was OIL or OIL, which was one of the driving forces behind the war. David Rovix has a great song about it. The U.S.-led coalition invaded largely on the premise of alleged weapons of mass destruction held by Saddam Hussein's regime, but none were found. Revelations of faulty intelligence and, in some cases, sheer dishonesty used to justify the eight-year conflict left many in the West very angry that their countries had been dragged into a war on dubious grounds. Of all the key actors involved in the invasion, one that often generates the most intense reactions is Tony Blair, the Prime Minister who backed U.S. President George Bush and has since faced criticism and vitriol from many quarters. 
Now, the former weapons inspector who was tasked with investigating Iraq's alleged possession of WMDs for the United Nations has spoken out against the former prime minister. Speaking on MSNBC ahead of the anniversary, Hans Blix said that, quote, in principle, Blair and Bush should have faced consequences for their invasion, which is now widely regarded as illegal under international law. He said there should be a penalty for breaking the principal rule of the United Nations Charter, not to use force against the territorial integrity and independence of other states. Blix pointed to the Nuremberg trials after World War II and demands for Vladimir Putin to face charges following the Ukraine invasion, claiming this is very much the standard the international community should adhere to. Asked if he thought Bush and Blair should face trial at The Hague for alleged war crimes, he said, I think in principle, yes. I think they will not come and nor will Putin come for a tribunal, but nevertheless, holding a tribunal and going through the evidence will be of value. We hear very much from the Western world about the rule-based international order. Well, that is the one that the U.S. and the U.K. and the others broke in 2003. Blix had been asked by then U.S. UN Secretary General Kofi Annan to determine whether Hussein really did possess the WMDs it was claimed he was hiding. At the start of 2003, he reported that Iraq most likely did not possess weapons of mass destruction or the means to produce them. He asked for more time to reach a clearer verdict, but the U.S. and U.K. decided they had had enough and launched their invasion. Blix said he felt sadness that he wasn't allowed more time and said it wasn't reasonable to close the door on inspections after three months. He later became much more vocal in his criticism of the invasion, telling BBC Panorama in 2016 that Blair had misrepresented the facts when he told UK MPs about Iraq's chemical weapons capabilities. The Swedish diplomat said he thought Blair, quote, had a feeling that this was an evil regime and that it was a moral thing to do away with it, but said he did not represent the reality when presenting his justifications. Speaking to the Chilcot inquiry into the UK's role in Iraq, Blix said he told Blair that while he suspected there were some prohibited items in Iraq, the UN's belief in intelligence had been weakened by a lack of evidence. One of the reasons so much anger has been directed at Blair was his apparent overstating of the danger posed by Hussein's regime to rush into a war for which the UK was poorly prepared. For example, his headline-grabbing claim made in Parliament that Iraq had chemical and biological weapons, quote, which could be activated within 45 minutes, turned out to be based on bogus intelligence. Sir John Chilcott, chairman of the Chairman's UK-Iraq War Inquiry, said the decision to go to war was not the last resort option that Blair had presented to the public. In the eve of the invasion, Blair warned MPs about the possibility of WMDs falling into the hands of terror groups, which he said was a real and present danger to Britain and its national security. However, he had been warned that military action would increase the threat from al-Qaeda to the UK and open up new territory for jihadists by bringing instability to the region. Since the end of the war, Blair has continued to attract much criticism, particularly amid ongoing political instability in Iraq, which became a breeding ground for Islamic terrorists. 
Rejecting most of the criticisms in the Chilcot report, he insisted he did not mislead the country and that he, quote, made the decision in good faith. However, he did, quote, express more sorrow, regret, and apology than you can ever know or believe. <laughs> the last part's exactly true. Don't believe it. That the war had created chaos in the region and resulted in Iraqis becoming victims of sectarian violence. 2017, the High Court ruled that Blair should not face prosecution for his role in the war, but resentment still lingers among some quarters even 20 years later. Even today, it is a lightning rod in the UK's political discourse. Nadine Talat has written this next piece, published at jacobin.com. The idea that over 100,000 forces would invade another country since World War II Nothing like that has happened, said U.S. President Joe Biden last month, referring to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Twenty years after the United States sent hundreds of thousands of troops to launch a full-scale, unwarranted invasion of Iraq, Biden's assertion suggests that the United States has erased the unwanted memories of the war. Biden's failure to see the hypocrisy in his statement is a testament to the enduring dominance of American exceptionalism. The belief that the United States is fundamentally different from other nations and has a unique mandate to dominate and impose its values across the world. It holds that America is synonymous with freedom and that the liberal world order is structured around its hegemony. Today, the nature and scale of the U.S. military engagements across the globe has certainly changed since it first invaded Iraq. But the underpinning ideology that the United States is not bound by the same rules that govern others remains fundamentally unchallenged. Every anniversary regurgitates fresh articles reflecting on tactical and operational mistakes. The recurring question is whether Iraq is better off today because of American intervention. Those defending the war may point out that many more Iraqis now have a cell phone plan and that life expectancy increased from 67 in 2001 to 72 today. Conveniently omitting that this increase still lags behind the global average increase. Self-justificatory pieces, like one by former George W. Bush speechwriter David Frum, often argue that the United States saved Iraq from a Syria-style civil war by establishing some form of democratic governance. They, quote, Iraqis, gained a chance from rights. It would be hard to overstate the devastation wrought by the Iraq War. Brown University's Cost of War Project estimates that roughly 300,000 innocent Iraqi civilians were killed as a result of direct fighting. Millions more died indirectly from its consequences, such as malnutrition, disease, and poverty. More than 9 million were displaced from their homes. Today, much of the political instability, corruption, and sectarian violence in Iraq can be traced back to the devastation of the war. Domestically, the invasion of Iraq cost U.S. taxpayers $2.4 trillion and fueled the military-industrial complex. Regionally, it birthed an Islamist insurgency that would become the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, destabilizing the region from Syria to Yemen and Libya. 
Despite this, the invasion of Iraq continues to be held in American consciousness and the mainstream political establishment as a mistake, yes, but one that had good intentions and that was based on sound logic. Namely, that Saddam Hussein represented a threat to the U.S.-led world order and needed to be removed. Despite a track record of disastrous wars and interventions like Vietnam, Libya, and Afghanistan, Iraq is seen as an aberration in American foreign policy rather than a symptom of American hubris. Iraq bore no responsibility for or links to those responsible for 9-11. But then President George W. Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney began arranging plans for its invasion just days after the plane struck. Not a single hijacker was Iraqi, and claims that Iraq had links to al-Qaeda were shaky at best, but that didn't matter. In the aftermath of the attacks, America needed to reassert its hegemony. Saddam's Iraq provided the perfect opportunity for it to showcase what would happen to those that threatened its power, and the disposability of the lives that happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. With the help of mainstream media, the Bush administration spun a narrative of Iraqi WMDs. They found the few Iraqis, most who had been living in exile, who would support their war and cherry-picked evidence to support their claims. In the two years after 9-11, Bush and top officials in his administration repeated lies about the threat Iraq posed to the U.S. public nearly a thousand times. Mainstream media largely failed to challenge these claims, silencing any dissenting voices. In the two weeks before and after Colin Powell's United Nations speech, just 17% of commentators on major network expressed skepticism at the war. These efforts to shape public opinion worked. By September 2003, 7 in 10 Americans believed that Saddam was in some way responsible for 9-11. Officials and media would later claim that they were misled, that the intelligence was faulty, and that they did the best they could with the evidence they had at the time. But even in 2003, at the height of the propaganda campaign, not everyone believed the official narrative. In the lead-up to the war, an estimated 36 million people across the world took to the streets to oppose the invasion in what is now considered the world's biggest coordinated protest. These protesters did not take to the streets that day just because they did not believe the claim of WMDs, but because they fundamentally rejected the notion that the United States had any moral justification to launch a war. They rejected the role America had designated itself as a global police and defender of the liberal world order. This piece includes a very good segment on President Obama and the shift to using drones as our military action of choice under Obama. Um, I'm going to skip over that part for this episode, but uh, if you want to read that part, once again, this is by Nadine Talat. And the title is The Bloodbath in Iraq Shows the U.S. Can Never Be a Global Policeman, published in Jacobin at jacobin.com. But then there's a further uh, segment in this article that comes back to the origins of the war. On September 20, 2001, nine days after the terrorist attacks on U.S. soil, George W. Bush announced the start of the global war on terror. He told Americans, our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, 
But it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. He issued the United States a blank check for a war not bound by temporal or geographical boundaries and a mandate to attack anyone, anywhere, deemed a threat. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the U.S. invoked its right to self-defense enshrined by international law. But as the years passed, the right to self-defense from an imminent attack became harder to claim. Instead, America has shifted to a policy of preemptive and preventive self-defense to defend itself against threats that have not yet materialized, a practice that violates international law. The war on terror's impact on the principle of sovereignty and legitimacy of the international order and are most evident today in Ukraine. In this case, Russia also justified its unilateral invasion with a weak claim to preventive self-defense against growing NATO influence. Today, as the world watches another illegal occupation go unchecked, the United States is repeating the mistakes of Iraq in its response to the Ukraine war. The reductive narrative of good versus evil is repeated over and over while dissenting voices are silenced. International law has become an empty slogan. Today, when the U.S. and its allies condemn Putin's actions, the rest of the world's memories of Iraq diminish any principled stance they may claim to have. Major allies of the United States, including Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and India, have refused to join the Western sanctions bloc. Across Africa and Asia, from South Africa to Indonesia, Uganda to Pakistan, politicians and leaders have called out America's selective concern for human rights and international law. Even Bush himself, when he accidentally called his Iraq war wholly unjustified, instead of the invasion of Ukraine, can't hide the hypocrisy. Perhaps what is most detrimental to the authority of international law is a complete lack of accountability that the United States has faced for the invasion of Iraq and larger war on terror. It refuses to subject itself to the International Criminal Court or the International Court of Justice or abide by any international systems of law. No formal apology has ever been issued. The architects of the war have never been tried, and many of those responsible for carrying out war crimes have evaded justice. There has been no meaningful conversation about reparations for the Iraqi people or the nearly one million victims of the war on terror, from Fallujah to Guantanamo Bay. The United States is not exceptional in its violation of international law, or even in lying about it. In fact, this is one of the most constant realities of the international world order. But what is exceptional is the underpinning belief in its own moral superiority and the double standards it allows itself in as a defender of freedom and democracy, while simultaneously acting as the world's main aggressor, with a global empire that answers to no one. For now, the U.S. continues to behave as the judge, jury, and executioner of world order, until the ideology of American exceptionalism is reckoned with, the true lessons of the Iraq War will remain unlearned. Next piece is published at theintercept.com. This is written by Peter Moss. If you write a 4,500-word article about a 20-year war, you might want to mention how many people were killed. While that seems obvious, 
Max Boot, an energetic backer of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, has written a lengthy article on the war's 20th anniversary that fails to note the number of deaths. The toll is in the hundreds of thousands, if not more. The carnage is too vast for an exact count. But Boot merely mentions a, quote, high price in both blood and treasure, and quickly moves on. How high a price? Whose blood? There is no explanation. Boot is hardly the only anniversary writer unable to mention the apparently unmentionable. Peter Mansur, a retired colonel with several deployments to Iraq, likewise failed to squeeze a reference to the death toll into his 2,000-word assessment of what happened. Mansour's story, like Boots, was published by Foreign Affairs, which is funded by the Council on Foreign Relations and is pretty much the true north of establishment thinking in Washington, D.C. Their failure, which is replicated in about 99% of America's discussions about Iraq, is a lot more than sloppy journalism. The Pentagon and its enablers prefer to turn the killing and maiming of civilians into an abstraction by calling it collateral damage, so that it becomes a detail of history that we can pass over. Ignoring civilian casualties is a necessary act of erasure if you wish to avoid a frank assessment of not just the Iraq War, but also the legacy and future of U.S. foreign policy. If you specify those casualties, which is not just hundreds of thousands of dead Iraqis in an illegal war begun with lies, but also millions of people injured, forced out of their homes, and traumatized for the rest of their lives, the discourse must change. The quote, high price, reveals itself as so grotesque that discussions can no longer center around the finer questions of how to better fight an insurgency, or why, quote, mistakes were made by supposedly well-intentioned leaders. It becomes a matter of when do the trials start. Who should be in the dock with George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and Condoleezza Rice? How large should Iraq's reparations be? And when can we impose on ourselves something like the constitutional ban on the use of military force to settle disputes that we imposed on Japan after World War II? Until COVID-19 came along, I thought the willful ignorance of Iraqi casualties was principally a matter of Americans not caring about the deaths of foreigners, especially those who are not white and not Christian. And that's certainly true. We don't care enough about those deaths, even if, or especially if, we are responsible for them. But the larger truth is that we also don't even care about the deaths of our own citizens. Choices have been made that caused America to have one of the highest per capita rates of COVID deaths, with more than a million dying so far, and probably another 100,000 dying this year. The numbers tick upward, but most of us hardly notice. In addition to the COVID toll, there is also the violence America inflicts on itself with guns, cars, opioids, and a predatory healthcare system that yields the highest maternal mortality rate among the world's richest nations. We are an exceptional nation, but not in the way we have been told. America kills its own at rates that are far higher than peer nations. The situation is getting worse, not better, because life expectancy in the U.S. is plummeting, while in comparable countries, it is increasing. It would take more than 4,500 words to get to the bottom of why America is so ruthless to itself 
as well as others. We certainly have a long history of externalized as well as internalized violence, thanks to the many wars we fought in the past century and a system of slavery that endured for generations. But it's not as though the rest of the world is composed of quiet Luxembourgs. Whether we look at what happened in Germany in the 1940s, or Rwanda in the 1990s, or what Russia is doing now to Ukraine and did to Chechnya, we are not unique. In the early hours of March 19, 2003, which was 20 years ago, I drove to the Iraqi border in a Hertz SUV, and when I got there, a U.S. soldier, whose face was daubed with camouflage paint, yelled from the pre-dawn darkness, Turn off your fucking lights! Turn them off now! He ordered me back into Kuwait. But after a few hours, I managed to sneak across the border at Safwan and join the American march to Baghdad. Three weeks later, I watched as Marines toppled the statue of Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein in Ferdos Square. Since then, I have written a lot about Iraq. My goal is to make Americans care about the violence committed in their name and to hold to account the political and military leaders whose orders our soldiers and mercenaries were carrying out. One of the lessons I have learned is that the stories I and other journalists write about those victims and Afghan and Yemeni and so many other victims of American warfare are insufficient on their own to turn the tide. It is naive to expect us to stop killing foreigners in large numbers if we remain complacent about killing ourselves in even larger numbers. Even if every story about Iraq noted the civilian casualties, I don't think it would make everyone suddenly wake up, though it would still be the right thing to do. We're not going to start caring about the lives of others until we start caring about our own lives. Here's a piece published at boingboing.net, written by Mark Froenfelder. Today, the New York Times published a piece titled, 20 Years On, A Question Lingers About Iraq, Why Did the U.S. Invade? The article listed all sorts of reasons why the U.S. went to war with a country that had nothing to do with the 9-11 Saudi terrorist attack but it neglected to mention how the paper acted as a mouthpiece for the Bush administration's lies and propaganda. The Times' own Judith Miller was a key player in spreading the false narrative of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Miller's reporting was not only uncritical, but also actively promoted the Bush-Cheney-Rumsfeld agenda. And yet the Times seems to have conveniently forgotten this fact as it continues to report on the Iraq War. It's not just Miller, either. The Times as a whole failed to ask tough questions and challenge the administration's claims in the lead-up to the war. Instead, it acted as a cheerleader for the war effort, helping to create the false impression that Iraq posed an imminent threat to the United States. So while the Times may now be asking, why did the U.S. invade? It's worth remembering that the Times was complicit in the lies and propaganda that led to the war, and it should be held accountable for its role in this tragic chapter in American history. Next up is a piece written by Lorraine Ali, titled, Iraq is a war no one wants to remember. As an Iraqi American, I can never forget. This is published at the LA Times.com. 
The pilot said their bombs lit Baghdad like a Christmas tree. It was the Christian thing to do, you see. The skies over Baghdad were, quote, lit up like a Christmas tree. The phrase, despite its joyful connotations, were used often during those first few hours of the attack, which U.S. military dubbed Operation Shock and Awe, by news anchors who struggled to describe the alternately dark and explosive scenes broadcast out of Baghdad. Twenty years ago today, a U.S.-led coalition invaded Iraq's capital, dropping bombs in the dead of night, decimating buildings and bridges before our eyes, igniting palm trees like so many angry torches. In the opening salvo of the Iraq War, watched by millions of Americans, it was an assault we'd assumed we'd never forget. A frightening sign of the times, like the 9-11 attacks. A defining event of the new 21st century. Except the 20th anniversary of the start of the war, unlike the nationwide commemorations of September 11, has crept up on us like an unwanted memory, tucked behind news of bank failures and miraculous weight loss drugs. There's nary a moment of national reckoning. No major parades, no commemorative postage stamp. It's the war no one wants to remember, and the one, as an Iraqi American, I'll never forget. The invasion irrevocably changed the course of my life and my family's, and its aftermath continues to reshape our lives and destinies. From cousins still displaced throughout the Middle East to their children, denied anything but Iraqi citizenship, even though they've never been to Iraq. It's ripped us apart and brought us back together, changing the very identity of those fortunate enough to survive seven years of warfare the destruction of infrastructure for clean water, electricity, and health care, the rise of violent extremism, the return of rampant corruption, and the neglect of those who vowed to help. For U.S. troops who fought in the war, forgetting is no easier, though their scars and memories are markedly different. Iraq is part of them, too. It's understandable why folks might prefer to overlook what has come to be seen as a shameful chapter in American history. First, it became clear that the invasion was predicated on false intelligence, that then-Iraqi President Saddam Hussein was colluding with al-Qaeda and stockpiling weapons of mass destruction. Then, after tens of thousands of lives lost and the displacement of millions of Iraqis, we left the region in considerably worse shape then we found it. It's unclear when or if the region will ever recover. My father's family tree had roots in Baghdad that dated back centuries until they were severed by the war. My dad was born in the time of the British mandate in Iraq. He learned to swim the Tigris River and honed his business acumen in his father's tea shop off Rashid Street before striking out on his own. He was the first of his family to attend college at the University of Baghdad and the first to leave Iraq. In the late 1950s, he immigrated to Los Angeles, where he attended USC, met my mom, married, and settled in the San Fernando Valley. There, his three girls spent much of their childhoods trying to convince their peers that Baghdad was indeed a real place 
despite what they saw in Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Cancer took Dad in the late 1980s. Ironically, it was caused by schistomiasis, a parasitic disease caused by flatworms found in the rivers of North Africa and the Middle East. While Baghdad had come back to claim him, his death meant that we, the only American Ali's, lost our connection with Iraq and that chasm grew with the discord of global politics. Hussein's dictatorship, the Gulf War of the early 1990s, the U.S.-led embargo, and our shoddy Arabic language skills further distance us from our aunts, uncles, and 35 first cousins overseas. Still, my sisters and I reasoned that the family would always be in Iraq and Baghdad would always be there for us. So when Operation Shock and Awe hit Baghdad, I didn't see an illuminated Christmas tree or a spectacular fireworks display. I imagined losing people that I loved forever. It marked the beginning of a journey to find my family wherever I could. Jordan, Syria, the United Arab Emirates, and yes, eventually Baghdad, in an attempt to mend us back together as the region unraveled. What I found was life-affirming and heartbreaking. My Iraqi family was and remains imprinted by every stage of the conflict. They hid in bathtubs and under stairs during the bombing campaign and watched in horror as antiquities were looted from the National Museum of Iraq during that first month of the war. They fled across closed borders with mortally sick kids in 2006 by bribing border guards and narrowly escaped mass execution by Islamic insurgents after the withdrawal of U.S. troops. Today they still pay extortionist fees to transport the bodies of loved ones back to Wadi As-Salam, a holy cemetery for Shiite Muslims in Najaf, Iraq. If this sounds like a sob story, that's because it is. It's hard not to cry when remembering the final conversation I had with my Uncle Mahdi before he died outside his homeland. He was sick, languishing in a hot apartment in a refugee enclave in Syria. The banter of kids who should have been in school back in Baghdad punctuated our conversation as they played soccer in the wasteland outside. I sat for days at the side of Mahdi's bed, listening to stories of his childhood and the fall of a city he loved. He asked me to write about what I saw him going through, the displacement, the loss, so the rest of the world understood. If only I had that power. But here I am now asking, please don't forget Uncle Mahdi or any of the others whose lives were ended and forever changed by a war no one wants to remember. The imperative to remember is not simply about laying blame, though. It's as much about analyzing our intentions in the moment as it is about recognizing the consequences of our actions after the fact. The invasion was sold to the American public as a patriotic and corrective measure, punishment for attacks on American soil, and protection against future plots. Despite a stunning lack of evidence implicating Hussein, the country came together behind a shared goal. Stop the bad guys. 
At the time of the invasion, I was working at Newsweek magazine, where even the seasoned senior editors were discussing events as one might abstractions on a map. Where are the critical strategic points in the city? The government headquarters, TV stations, oil refineries. It was perhaps the last time the U.S. media and the U.S. public were united behind one cause, and when the facade crumbled, so too did our trust in a system that allowed the architects of war so much unilateral power. Recognizing the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War requires some pretty harsh introspection. As it did in Vietnam, the U.S. invaded Iraq with little vision for what would come after the initial bombardment and lost the war in a slow drip of missteps. We need to recognize these patterns of the past if we're ever to change them, and we must be willing to admit their analog in the present, as Russia, a huge military power, invades Ukraine, a small sovereign country, on its own false pretense of liberation, in order to fight back. Baghdad may have appeared deserted in that early feed of shock and awe footage we all watched 20 years ago, but it's clear now what was missing from the frame. Humans. For those of us who experienced the deluge or who were connected to the terrified people below, that day is not something we have to force ourselves to remember. It's a tragedy we can't and shouldn't ever forget. Brian Erlocker is the author for this next piece, published at theconversation.com. President George W. Bush and his administration put forward a variety of reasons to justify the 2003 invasion of Iraq. In the months before the U.S. invasion, Bush said the looming conflict was about eradicating terrorism and seizing weapons of mass destruction, but also because of a, quote, freedom deficit in the Middle East, a reference to the perceived lag in participatory government in the region. Many of these arguments would emerge as poorly grounded given later events. In 2004, then-Secretary of State Colin Powell reflected on the weak rationale behind the main arguments for the invasion, that there were weapons of mass destruction. He acknowledged that, quote, It turned out that the sourcing was inaccurate and wrong, and in some cases, deliberately misleading. It's the long way to say, it was a bunch of lies. In fact, Iraq did not have a stockpile of weapons of mass destruction, as Powell and others had alleged at the time. But the Bush administration's rhetoric of building a more free, open, and democratic Middle East persisted after the weapons of mass destruction claim had proven false and has been harder to evaluate, at least in the short term. Bush assured the American public in 2003 that, quote, a new regime in Iraq would serve as a dramatic and inspiring example of freedom for other nations in the region. He focused on this theme during the ground invasion, in which a coalition force of nearly 100,000 American and other Allied troops rapidly toppled Saddam Hussein's regime. Quote, The establishment of a free Iraq at the heart of the Middle East will be a watershed event in the global democratic revolution, Bush said in November 2003. He also said that the U.S. would be pursuing a, quote, forward strategy of freedom in the Middle East. Twenty years on, it's worth considering how this forward strategy has played out both in Iraq and across the Middle East. In 
2003, there was indeed, as Bush noted, a freedom deficit in the Middle East where repressive authoritarian regimes dominated the region. Yet, in spite of tremendous upheaval in the Middle East over the past two decades, many authoritarian regimes remain deeply entrenched. Political science scholars like myself try to measure the democratic or authoritarian character of governments in a variety of ways. The nonprofit group Freedom House evaluates countries in terms of democratic institutions and whether they have free and fair elections, as well as people's civil rights and liberties, such as freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and a free press. Freedom House rates each country and its level of democracy on a scale from 2 to 14, from mostly free to least free. One way to think about the level of democracy in the region is to focus on the 23 countries and governments that form the Arab League, a regional organization that spans North Africa, the Red Sea coast, and the Middle East. In 2003, the average Freedom House score for an Arab League member was 11.45, far more authoritarian than the global average of 6.75 at the time. Put another way, the Freedom House report in 2003 classified a little over 46% of all countries as free, but no country in the Arab League met that threshold. While some Arab countries like Saudi Arabia were ruled by monarchies around this time, others like Libya were ruled by dictators. The nearly 30-year-long regime of Hussein in Iraq fit this second pattern. Hussein was part of a 1968 coup led by the Ba'ath Political Party, a group that wanted all Arab countries to form one unified nation, but also became known for human rights violations. The Ba'ath Party relied upon Iraq's oil wealth and repressive tactics against civilians to maintain power. The fall of Hussein's regime in April 2003 produced a nominally more democratic Iraq. But after fighting a series of sectarian insurgencies in Iraq over an eight-year period, the U.S. ultimately left behind a weak and deeply divided government. The U.S. 2003 invasion succeeded in ousting a brutal regime, but establishing a healthy and thriving new democracy proved more challenging. Rivalry between Iraq's three main groups, the Sunni and Shiite Muslims, as well as the Kurds, the largest ethnic minority in the country, paralyzed early attempts at political reorganization. While Iraq today has a constitution, a parliament, and holds regular elections, the country struggles both with popular legitimacy and with practical aspects of governance, such as providing basic education for children. Indeed, in 2023, Freedom House continues to score Iraq as not free in its measure of democracy. Since the U.S. military withdrawal in 2011, Iraq has lurched from one political crisis to another. From 2014 to 2017, large portions of western Iraq were controlled by the extremist militant Islamic State group. In 2018 and 2019, rampant government corruption led to a string of anti-government protests which sparked a violent crackdown by the government. The protests prompted early parliamentary elections in November 2021, but the government has not yet been able to create a coalition government representing all competing political groups. While Iraq's most recent crisis avoided descending into civil war, 
The militarized nature of Iraqi political parties poses an ongoing risk of electoral violence. While Iraq continues to face deep political challenges, it is worth considering the U.S. efforts at regional democracy promotion more fully. In 2014, widespread protest movements associated with the Arab Spring toppled dictators in Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, and Libya. In other countries, such as Morocco and Jordan, monarchs were able to offer concessions to people and remain in control by delaying public spending cuts, for example, and replacing government ministers. Yet sustaining stable democracies has proved challenging even where the Arab Spring seemed to succeed in changing political regimes. In Egypt, the military has reasserted itself and the country has slid steadily back to authoritarianism. In Yemen, the political vacuum created by the protests marked the start of a devastating civil war. The average Freedom House democracy score for members of the Arab League is today 11.45, the same as it was on the eve of the Iraq invasion. It is hard to know if U.S. efforts at democracy promotion accelerated or delayed political change in the Middle East. It is hard to know if a different approach might have yielded better results. Yet the data, at least as social scientists measure such things, strongly suggests that the vision of an Iraq as an inspiration for a democratic transformation in the Middle East has not come to pass. And finally for this episode is a piece published at popularresistance.org written by Natalia Marquez. A group of intergenerational, diverse organizers are preparing for a mobilization in Washington, D.C. that seeks to unite various sectors of the nation's anti-war movement. Under the slogans, Peace in Ukraine, Negotiations Not Escalation, Fund People's Needs, Not the War Machine, and Say No to Endless U.S. Wars and Sanctions, Abolish NATO. Over 200 organizations are rallying and marching from the White House on March 18. Endorsers and organizers include the Answer Coalition, Code Pink, the People's Forum, Popular Resistance, Veterans for Peace, Black Alliance for Peace, Roger Waters, the Palestinian Youth Movement, DSA International Committee, Leonard Peltier, and Samadun Palestinian Prisoners Solidarity Network. The war in Ukraine has already taken hundreds of thousands of lives, plunged the world into crisis, and will cost the people of the U.S. at least $113 billion in public money. Many in the anti-war movement argue that the war wasn't caused by Russia alone, despite what U.S. politicians and media say, and furthermore, it was completely avoidable. Instead, they argue, it is a product of decades of NATO provocation, by moving eastward despite promises from U.S. to the Soviet Union at the time that, quote, not an inch of NATO's present military jurisdiction will spread in an eastern direction. The U.S. and other NATO countries have been sending weapons to Ukraine since 2014, which some argue makes Ukraine a de facto NATO member. Russia has been clear that it will not accept Ukraine, which was part of the Soviet Union, being a NATO member for security reasons. Weapons support by the West to Ukraine has resulted in the further arming of extremist right-wing groups in the Eastern European nation, such as the Azov Battalion.
Those joining the march have plenty of reasons to participate. Some have been active in the anti-war movement since even before the Iraq War 20 years ago, which broke out on March 20, 2003, in the shock and awe U.S. invasion. The U.S. war against Iraq was based on a foundation of lies. Leading up to the war, top U.S. officials and journalists came together to tell one of the biggest lies ever told to the U.S. public, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Through lies and through fear-mongering regarding the 2001 September 11 attacks, the U.S. built popular support for the war. The subsequent brutal war virtually destroyed Iraqi society and paved the way for the rise of extremist right-wing groups such as ISIS. While Iraq war death tolls are disputed and often underreported, British polling agency Opinion Research Business estimated over one million people died as a result of the war. To this day, doctors in Fallujah report a steady stream of birth defects resulting from chemical weapons deployed by U.S. forces, which included depleted uranium and white phosphorus. Becker of the Answer Coalition has been protesting against the war since the U.S. war in Vietnam and notices many parallels between the Iraq war and the drive for war today. It's an old cliche that the first casualty in war is the truth, he said. In both cases, the people of the U.S. were told that they must hate workers who happen to live in another country thousands of miles away. People from Russia or China are now the enemy, not Iraqis, as the U.S. inches towards major power conflict. The cover story for the current war drive is not based on the lies of WMDs. Instead, U.S. officials condemn alleged Chinese aggression or blame Russia for a war which could have been entirely avoided. Although U.S. troops are not fighting on the ground in Ukraine, U.S. weapons and funding are perpetuating the war. And it is the U.S. and NATO that have sabotaged all possibilities of negotiations for a peaceful resolution. But a new proxy war also demands a new generation of activists to take up the mantle of the anti-war movement. Today, some organizers are too young to remember the outbreak of the Iraq War, representing an entirely new generation of the anti-war movement. Delaney Leonard, a 19-year-old in her first year of college and a member of the Howard University Dissenters, an anti-war group at a historically black university, cannot recall a time in her life when the U.S. wasn't at war. She will be part of the demonstration Saturday because, quote, the effects of billions of dollars being taken away from crucial sectors of our country, such as education, health care, or housing, has been intrinsic to my youth. Kate Gonzalez, age 24, who is part of organizing a contingent traveling to the protest from New York City on behalf of the People's Forum, has no memory of the Iraq War starting. But as she grew older, quote, it became so disturbing to me that such a huge human rights violation, a huge tragedy of humanity, could go on for so long. Even more disturbing, said Gonzalez, was that the war could be so normalized and made so invisible. That's why it's important for young people to take a public stand against escalation in Ukraine, Gonzalez affirmed. The March 18th mobilization is incredibly important for young people, Leonard of Howard University dissenters said. Even though we may have been children when previous mass anti-war movements occurred, we are now in the position to take up the mantle of demanding a better future, liberated from the parasite that is militarism. And that will wrap up this episode 
of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can find out all the back episodes, not find them out. You can actually find them. All the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral at YCBNeutral on Twitter. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. Gave you a little taste of this earlier. This is a song written and performed by Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. The song is called Winter of the Long Hot Summer. As you listen to it, just understand this was not written about the 2003 U.S.-Iraq War. This song was written about the 1992 U.S.-Iraq War, the first modern U.S.-Iraq War, the one with Schwarzkopf and Bush Sr. at the helm. But when you listen to these lyrics that talk about the media complicity, that talk about the buildup and the lies, that talk about the skies being lit like a Christmas tree, it, it is so applicable to the second war, um, even though it was written about the first. From the album, Hypocrisy is the Greatest Luxury. Here's your moment of zen. This is the winter of the long, hot summer. Thanks for listening. so idiotic all the accusations of unpatriotic the fall will always remember capitulating silence election november before the winter of the long hot summer somewhere in the desert we raised the oil pressure and waited for the weather to get much better for the new winter blowing the storm we tried to remember the history and the region the french foreign legion imperialism Peter O'Toole and hate the Ayatollah were all we learned in school. And not that we gave Hussein five billion, not of our new bed partner, the Syrian. And of course, no mention of the Palestine situation. It was amazing how they steamrolled. They said 80% approval, but there was no one that I knew pulled. No one had a reason for being in the Gulf. We waited for Congress to speak up. Illegal build-up, but no one would wake up. Our representatives were Millie Vanillas. For corporate Dallas Cowboy, Beverly Hillbillies. With perfect timing, the politicians rhyming. The sentiments so nicely. Oil, gold, and sand. My sentiments precisely. We regretfully support the lunacy I'm afraid there's no time for more scrutiny National unity Preserve our community Teflon election opportunities We're in profound abundance On January 2nd the Bush administration Announced a recession had stricken the nation The highest quarterly earnings in 10 years Were posted by Chevron Meanwhile, our budget was 
placed in our hand as the deadline in the sand came to an end. So much for the peace dividend. A billion a day was what we spend, and our grandchildren will pay for it to the end. When schools are unfunded and kids don't get their diplomas, they get used for gumbo diplomacy. Disproportionately black or brown, we see. Bullet catches for the slave master. Then the conservatives called up reservists to active service. Left families nervous, but more importantly broke. 900 a month, but the check came late. Army red tape, you see, this golden opportunity. We watched it too and read the newspaper. The propaganda of the gas mask raper was the proper slander to whoop up the hatred. The stage was lit and the lights were all faded. The pilots and night vision goggles created and generals masturbated till the 15th. Two days later, they invaded. Not a single TV station expressed dissension or hardly made mention to the censorship of information from a kind of a gentler nation, blinder and mentaler, retardation, disorientation. The pilots said their bombs lit Baghdad like a Christmas tree. It was the Christian thing to do, you see. They didn't mention any casualties, no distinction between the real and the proxy. Only football analogies. We saw the bomb hole, we watched the Super Bowl. We saw the scud missile, we watched both commercials. We saw the yellow ribbon, saw pilots in prison. We never saw fans of the dead at 11. the spectators and shouting above a rumbling generator if they insist on bringing this down then let's shut the whole country down marching through the downtown a hundred thousand became participants and we heard the drums of millions off in the distance rushing through the cities some of them did things that weren't so pretty most were there for primal screen therapy Concentrated on the negative, like the jingoist more Peaceful protesters ended up on the cutting room floor Nintendo casualties of the ratings war More bombs dropped in World War II or in both Asian invasions New World Order persuasion Business as usual for our nation Imagine 150,000 dead The city of Stockton Coffins locked in When we clocked in Not to mention civilians The loss of life on both sides Pushed the limits of resilience The scent of blood in our nostril Fuel of the fossil Land of apostle The blackness that covered the sky Was not the only thing that Veterans mining the memory of 
the dying laying in a line Is it the smell of the shadows heaving and weeping That keep the soldiers from sleeping As he sings the orphan's lullaby Thank you. 